Well, we're, we're reading uh, Hosea at the moment, and uh, I'd like to just begin by challenging us as to whether we really believe and perceive the depth and the length and the, and the breadth of the love of God as we ought to. I'm sure every single one of us has those moments when we feel that we are nothing, we are, we are not really loved, even though we, we are, but we, we feel that we are not really loved, we, we feel that we are of no value, that we are existing rather than, than living a life that is loved and, and looked, with, looked at with, uh, with joy and delight by somebody else. And in those feelings, we are questioning the love of God. And I'm sure that ultimately, although we, we proclaim that we believe in salvation and that we believe that we shall live eternally with the Lord at, at his return, that we shall be resurrected and live forever with him, it seems to me that there are moments, whole periods of our lives perhaps, certainly days, weeks, months, years for some people, where they seriously doubt that. I don't think anyone, in the end, seriously questions the existence of God, I mean, amongst us as believers. And yet, I think we do very often seriously question whether we ultimately shall be there. And, again, we are failing to perceive the huge extent of the love of God. Now, in this whole relationship between Hosea and Goma, we have an attempt by God to again reassure us of the extent of his love. And I think in this really remarkable prophecy, God, as it were, drops his guard completely and really opens up to Israel and to us about the extent of his love and the nature of his love. Now, Hosea starts off as a a man who loves God, as a a prophet, who's then told to go and, and marry a prostitute. But I think you can reason back from the way that he he uh, responds to her unfaithfulness uh, to conclude that he actually was really attracted to her. So this is really the unusual story of the prostitute and the prophet. Uh, It's sort of on a kind of psychological level, it's quite normal that a spiritual man like him would get attracted to a prostitute uh, uh, and that she would be attracted to him. That, That is, to me, uh, completely psychologically understandable. And <clears throat> so he, he marries her, and she is predictably, I suppose, unfaithful to him. She has children, and she says, Yes, dear, these are yours. And as they grow up, he realizes, These are not my children. And he even names one of them. You are not mine. You are not my people. You are not one of mine. He knows this very, very well. And he sets up all kinds of plans to try to win her back, to make her suffer a bit so that she will return to him. And yet I think you can reason from those first three chapters in Hosea that Gomer is sexually addicted. She really has got an addiction. She's going after her lovers. She uh, is absolutely uh, unfaithful. She is sexually addicted. And then, in the rest of the prophecy, we have God talking about Israel and his relationship with Israel. But throughout the rest of those chapters in Hosea, when God talks about his relationship with Israel, he is alluding back all the time to the Hosea-Goma situation. That's why there's so many references of a a kind of sexual nature. There's so much reference to adultery, prostitution, etc., 
because this is what Gomer was doing to Hosea. So, for example, <coughs> we've read chapter 11 of Hosea, uh, verse 12. God says, Ephraim compasses me about with lies. Well, that's exactly what Gomer would have done to Hosea. Yes, dear, these are your children. Love you? Oh, of course I love you. Um, what were you doing, like, down the casino with those guys? <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, well, nothing, really. Uh, <laughs> preaching the gospel. Um, no, none of your business. You know that I love you. Are, are you possibly implying that I might be anything less than totally faithful to you? Etc., etc. And um, <clears throat> you see this uh, all through, really, uh, Hosea, very, uh, very clearly all the time. Uh, verse 7, God says, My people are bent to backsliding from me. <clears throat> Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. <clears throat> so that's, you know, typical, I suppose, of us, that we call upon the name of the Most High. We call the Most High's name upon us not only in baptism, but in our insistence that we are actually his people. And yet, do we really exalt him? You know, we have this name called upon us, but are we totally, wholly his? God's people were bent to backsliding from him, just as Gomer, it seems, was, as I say, sexually addicted, but she was bent to backsliding away from Hosea. Um, in chapter 8, verse 9, she hired lovers. Chapter 4, uh, verse 11. Whoredom and wine have taken away the heart. Whoredom took away the heart of Israel, just as I submit that Gomer was uh, sexually addicted. And yet, through all this, Hosea loves her. And he has, it seems to me, a kind of um, a fantasy at times about getting her back. It starts quite early on um, in chapter 2 where Hosea says that he's going to um, take away all her blessings that he gives her so that she says, verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband for then was it better with me than now. And later on in that chapter you see in chapter 2 God saying, verse 19, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, in judgment, in loving kindness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine. I understand that not so much as uh, prediction, but I understand that as God's hope, as God's fantasy, that although she's messed up on him so badly, in fact one day they would have a, a remarriage ceremony and there would be so much joy that the echo of that joy would echo backwards and forwards between the heavens and the earth. That's how I understand that. And that, when you think of it, is really a part of love. Is not fantasy a part of love? Wild hopefulness and imagination? The crazy kind of hope? In the same way as Hosea hoped that by what he did he would get Gomer to come back to him. So God says, chapter 3, verse 5, that, well, verse 4, that likewise Israel will abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice, and afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God. 
Well, as I say, I, I don't take that as necessarily a predictive prophecy. I take this because it's based on the feelings of Hosea for Gomer. I take this as the hopefulness of God. That God was not and is not indifferent. As if to say, particularly in our generation, my son has, has died for you, I gave my son for you, it's over to you now, I set it all up, accept it or not accept it, it's your choice, it's over to you. There is a, a feeling in God, a hopefulness, a passion. And when you wonder why there is so much anger in the book of Hosea, the anger of Hosea over Goma, the anger of God with his people, uh, sometimes expressed in, in quite brutal terms almost, that he says he will be like a lion and he will tear them and destroy them to the end. He will slay her children with thirst. Um, why is there so much anger? Where does this anger come from? And the anger comes in this context from the extent of love that Hosea had for Goma and that God had for Israel. Because it was so abused and rejected, Therefore, Hosea, and therefore God, felt so angry. And that is what leads to the, the pain of God. Um, and we need to remember that. That God is not indifferent to human behavior. I know it seems almost unbelievable that the God who is so far away from us in terms of space, in terms of understanding, in, in, in terms of absolutely everything. That, you know, it's not even fair to draw an analogy between a human being and, and an ant beneath our feet, um, as, as man is to, to God. Why should he get so hurt by our rebellion and by our behavior? Well, only because he has loved us so much and we are made, don't forget, in the image of God and our experience of love and our basic emotional structure I think is a reflection of, of that of God Almighty and this leads God to make statements which might appear to be on the surface contradictory and we have here in uh, Hosea 11 a couple of classic examples, verse 5 God says, he shall not return into the land of Egypt. That he would punish his people, but they shall not return to Egypt. Chapter 8, verse 13, they shall return to Egypt. As if to say, I took them out of Egypt, and now I'm going to throw them back there and be done with them. Very uh, clear, kind of surface level, kind of contradiction. I've got another one in chapter 14, verse 4, where at the end, God says... I will love them freely. Chapter 9, verse 15, I hate them. I will love them no more. I will love them no more. Terrible words from God Almighty. But chapter 14, verse 4, I will love them freely. Chapter 11, verse 9, that we, we just read, I will not destroy Ephraim. I will not destroy but plenty of times earlier on in the prophecy he has said that he will do that I mean chapter 5 verse 14 I will be unto Ephraim as a lion I even I will tear and go away I will take away and none shall rescue him and I will go and return to my place um, chapter 5 verse 9 Ephraim shall be destroyed in the day of rebuke 
chapter 9 verse 16 Ephraim is destroyed Ephraim is smitten the AV says their root is dried up they shall bear no fruit though they bring forth yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb and yet chapter 11 verse 9 I will not destroy Ephraim so then what are we to make of these contradictions I think that they are not contradictions in, in, in the sense of ah well that proves the Bible is not true or ah that proves God's kind of not serious I think it's far more profound than that I think it shows that God has emotion and just as in anger we may say things that are beyond the position that we really hold so in this context I think we can say that God did the same and I think we can also say that God said those the harder things like they shall return to Egypt I will love them no more he, he said that with full integrity and with full justification but his love is so great that his love is even greater than his stated intention and his stated word and therefore he can change and I think we see this classically really in our chapter here chapter 11 verse 9 I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger I will not return to destroy Ephraim why? He's just he said earlier he's going to do that because I am God and not man well we might say that because God is God and not man it's man who says things and doesn't do them and sort of bluffs a bit but God's word is ultimately true but in fact if we take that too far we end up saying that God is sort of uh, passionless makes statements uh, which he cannot as it were ever get around but exactly because he is God and not man therefore it seems to me that he alone can say things in his anger with absolute integrity such as I will love you no more and yet change he can do that we I don't think so much can do that in the sense that I don't think we should uh, take that as meaning well I don't have to be uh, serious about my words I can say what I want for and what I want and then change no I, I don't know if I'm putting this over well um, but what I mean is that God can say these contradictory things with the utmost integrity because they are a reflection of the absolute profoundness, the, the profound depth of his love that he can state something and then change it I think actually the whole Bible starts with this in the day that you eat of that tree you shall surely die dying thou shalt die I don't think refers to a process it's just a Hebraism for saying this will really happen doubling up as it were dying you will really die but in that day when Adam ate that fruit he did not die because God foresaw the way of escape through the sacrifice of Jesus so then you can read through Hosea and find these apparent contradictions well no, contradiction is, is maybe the wrong, uh, the wrong term um, these statements of anger from God which are then reversed and I think it is to reflect to us that his forgiveness of us 
His acceptance of you and me as sinners who are worthy to die um, is colossally painful to him and is a hugely emotional um, expenditure from him in order to achieve this. So it's not as if, ah, yeah, I did something wrong. Okay, well, yeah, please, dear God, please forgive me. Well, I said please forgive me, therefore, yeah, God says he'll forgive me, so therefore he's forgiven me. Maybe as children we were brought up perhaps to, um, to, to, to sort of say to God at the end of the day, ah, yeah, and sort of P.S., uh, forgive me for everything I, I, I did that sort of wasn't right. Amen. Go to sleep. And I, I think something of that kind of abides with us in adulthood. And it's not like that. God's forgiveness of us is not just a case of, well, you rattled off, I'm sorry, please forgive me, so therefore, sure, you know, so you get it. There is a huge emotional expenditure from God. And of course we see this coming to its ultimate term in the incalculable pain which there was for, for the Father in the death of his Son. Um, finally then, in Hosea 11, <coughs> on the same sort of theme, Ephraim compasseth me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah yet ruleth with God, and is faithful with the saints. But earlier in the book of Hosea, you see God talking about Judah in pretty similar terms to what he talks about Israel. Uh, chapter 5, verse 12 that therefore I will be unto Ephraim as a moth, unto the house of Judah as rottenness. The, the two houses of Ephraim and Judah are put together. Uh, it's the same in verse 13 of chapter 5 and uh, 14. I will be to Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. I will go and return to my place, until they, that is Ephraim and Judah, acknowledge their offence and seek my face. And then chapter, chapter 6, verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. So then Judah's apparent spirituality was just a surface level thing. And going on in chapter 6, verse 11. Also, O Judah, that is, don't just think this is God uh, hurt and upset with, uh, with the ten tribes. Also, O Judah, also, he hath set an harvest for thee. You also are going to reap his judgment. And, in fact, in Ezekiel, where he uses very similar language to talk about the, the whoredom and the unfaithfulness of Israel, he talks about the two sisters, Aholah and Aholibama. And he actually says that Judah has done worse than Israel. She was even more unfaithful. So what's all this then at the end of Hosea 11 about, ah yeah, well Judah at least rules with God and is faithful. It seems to me that this is imputed righteousness. This is God loving Judah, really, for, for David's sake, as, as I see it. This is his sort of unwarranted, if you like, uh, love of people, Judah, by imputing righteousness to them by pure grace. Even though they were, according to Ezekiel 23, more wicked than their backsliding sister Israel. And so we come back to where we started, this question about can I believe in the love of God? Well, there are in the New Testament some amazing statements 
about how we will stand at the last day before the Lord Jesus Christ. That we shall be presented faultless, Jude says, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Faultless. They are without fault before the throne of God, we read in Revelation. We shall be presented in his eyes spotless, Paul says, pure, without any mark. Now what are we to make of this? We as sinners, we as people who not only commit sin but omit to do all the things that we should do, we who are so half-hearted, who are so disloyal to the one who loved us and gave himself for us in, in apparently petty minor things, but we all know that life in practice is all to do with petty and minor things because that's, that's kind of what life is. What are, we to, what are we to make of this? This is imputed righteousness. This is the love that is not blind, but that counts someone as perfect. And in a sense, that is what love is. Looking at the, uh, the object, if you like, of, of your love, if I can objectify it in those, those kind of terms, and not being blind to their faults and failures, I don't think love is blind in that sense, but in spite of them, and in spite of your knowledge of them, counting that person as perfect, as wonderful. And this is what God has done to us. And so we have to come back to a very basic question. Am I in Christ? You are baptized under Christ. You are in Christ. You are covered with his righteousness. Now, this is good news that I would say is almost too good to believe. That God loves me to such an extent that all my sin, failure, dysfunction, imperfection lack of getting there in the end in my personality character development, whatever even all that is not a barrier to his love for me the, the profundity of all this is very hard to get over in, uh, in words, but I think that's why we have this, this remarkable little prophecy of Hosea this the story, there's a true account of this man and, and the, the prostitute, the prostitute and the prophet, to try to get into our thick skulls that simple reality that God loves me to that extent. Now, if that is the case, and it is the case, we cannot be passive to that. You cannot just shrug and say, oh, that's nice. You can't. It's so wonderful that you have to do something in response. And that thing that you do in response is, in the end, love. Love not in words, but in deeds. Care, generosity, kindness, forgiveness, grace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit. That, it seems quite logically and naturally, is the response. Thank you.